Welcome to the Story Hackers podcast, co-hosted by Ratika Puri and myself, Justin Strauss. We're joined by David Heinermeyer Hansen, co-founder of the project management platform Basecamp and creator of the programming language Ruby on Rails. David is also a best-selling author, competitive race car driver, and practitioner of stoicism. We sit down with him and discuss his experiences with all of these things and much more in today's episode. David, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to sit with you and chill with you and talk to you and learn from you. And many of our listeners are going to be very new to your message. They self-identify as high-intensity people. They're looking to push boundaries in their lives. They're in governments. They're in companies. They're starting companies. And we're so excited to learn from your journey. Sure, it's a pleasure to have you guys at uh, my house. It's a new experience to do a podcast in person and uh, really look forward to it. Awesome. Um, So, David, you have had life experiences that people can only think of in dreams. You've driven 5,000 kilometers through France. You've started one of the world's most notable companies that change the way that people work online. You've created books, people learn from you. And I'd love to go back to the very beginning of it all before any of this unfolded, before it manifested. What was life like when you were first getting started? So I was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I lived there until I was 25. And as I was growing up, I always liked computers. So that became a focal point of The hobbies that I had, I loved video games. I played a lot of video games. I thought I was going to be a video game creator at some point. And I tried to learn programming to basically make computer games. And I failed a bunch of times. I think it took four times trying to learn programming over the years until it finally clicked for me. And then the real opening for me was the internet. That just as I was coming through high school, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to pursue, the internet was kind of blowing up. And I thought, this is just amazing. Uh, I was into video games, as I said, and before I sort of could go on the journey of thinking about creating them, I thought, well, let me just write about them. So I did video game journalism for quite a number of years, and the internet was just the perfect position for that because... I was still in high school. No one was really going to give me a column or whatever in a, in a magazine, a printed magazine. But here's the internet, and I can just put online whatever I want. So that's exactly what I did. I started a couple of video game websites and built up the skills of organization. We had a whole distributed team, actually, uh, back there in, what's this, 96, 97, where... We didn't have any funding. We didn't have any money. I would go to a video game shop in town and basically walk up to the guy who ran the console division and ask him if I could borrow the games such that we could review him, so we could write about him, and so we could put that stuff online. And that taught me a lot about the constraints. It taught me a lot about organization. taught me a lot about remote work. We were all distributed over the country of Denmark, and I would send out the CDs with the games to the different reviewers in different towns. And I kind of just got a lot of um, satisfaction out of building something. There was nothing. There was not a website. Then I started working on a website. All of a sudden, there's a website, there's a community, there's readers, there's writers. I'm interfacing with, with publishers. We started 
um, going directly to the people importing the games in Denmark and asking if we could um, just get the games from them rather than having to go down to the local shop to borrow them. So I was building up all these skills that are today still the main things that I rely on to do the work that I do. And it all sprung out of just a, a passion for video games and a passion for publishing and making something of my own. And to be in an environment where I could do what I wanted to do with nobody telling me any different. Like we were making our own site. I was the editor of the site. We would publish what I wanted to have published. No one was um, putting limits on that. And that was a really freeing experience, which gave me the motivation that that's how I wanted to work. And then in some ways, I almost regressed a bit because I took a real job or I took a number of real jobs working for technology companies in Copenhagen. Uh, some of it sprung out of the video game work. I, I ended up working at a portal. So a portal with this, was this big thing in the late 90s with the dot-com boom where it had to have everything on it and you'd have kind of like the early days of Yahoo. And there was a Danish uh, portal that I took a job at and all of a sudden, I wasn't just running my own thing anymore. I was an employee, and it was, in some ways, it felt like, wow, I'm getting paid to do this stuff now. I had, for years, I hadn't gotten paid. We hadn't made any money whatsoever. We'd only spent money trying to publish all these video game reviews and so on. And all of a sudden, I'm getting paid, and it feels, oh, that's amazing. But you know what? It wasn't that amazing. I quickly learned that, that just having a paycheck was by no means enough. And in some ways, it was... What I had to give up to get that paycheck was not worth it for me. And then I went to another, uh, a number of other technology companies, and those lessons hardened. That working for other people is not inherently a problem. I mean, I've worked with lots of people who I respect or enjoyed working with. But those particular experiences had me working with people that in many cases didn't actually respect. Or not that I didn't respect the people, I didn't respect their opinions about how to run a company and I didn't respect their actions. So I was just building up all this, I mean, it sounds harsh, but grievances of, I don't want to run my company like this. This is a shitty way to run a company. Why are they doing it like this? Can't they see that we as workers end up miserable from their actions and completely needlessly so. They're not making any more money because they're, um, they're acting in these ways. And I was just building all this up. And I was building it on top of the experience of having started my own thing, this nonprofit just writing about video games and having that great experience, no money involved, all of a sudden in a different power dynamic where I'm an employee for someone else, I'm getting paid, and that's great, but they're also telling me what to do, and they're acting in all these stupid ways, and I'm just accumulating all this stuff going like, if I get that chance again to go back and run my own show, I'm going to run it different. How did you make that chance ultimately to branch out on your own and uh, leave the workplace and start your own company? So it happened sort of slowly. Um, after I had worked in a number of startups in Denmark, around 2001, everything came crashing down. The dot-com boom turned into a bust. And I saw the writing of the wall in 2001 and thought, you know what, I don't have to stick around for the crater. So I quit the company I was working for at the moment and thought, let me just go to school for a while. That, that seems like a good place to hide out while all this... Um, rubble is being sorted through. So I got into the Copenhagen Business School, 
and had a, attended a joint program of computer science and business administration. And it says computer science on the label, but it really wasn't computer science. It was some very introductory courses to computer science that weren't really that deep. But what it was was information system design. It actually had some great classes on that. And that was something I was really interested in. And I quickly learned that the part of the computer that I was interested in was not the computer science part. I was not fascinated by compilers. That just was not a topic of interest. Uh, but I was really fascinated about building information systems and building systems in general for actual human beings. So the program served me well in that regard. And then the business side of it gave me just some fundamentals about economics and finance and organizational design that perhaps weren't as imminently applicable to the work that I would then do. Most of those classes are designed about, oh, let's do read a Harvard case study about some big multinational and how they do things doesn't apply that well to four people, for example. But some of the fundamentals do. I mean, we dove into Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all sorts of uh, one-on-one stuff around organizational theory. And I didn't know at the time, but that was a great foundation that I'm happy that I've gotten uh, out of it. But towards the end of the a three-year program, I had already taken up doing uh, consulting, so writing software for clients. And I had connected with Jason Freed, who is now my business partner at Basecamp, and started working with him, which is sort of a roundabout uh, way we got involved, which is he had a blog. He had started in 1999 alongside uh, the company 37 Signals. It was called Signal Versus Noise, which is still the name of the blog today, 20 years later. And I'd been a reader of that blog since 99 and was just a big fan. And then in 2001, Jason was trying to learn PHP programming and asked a question on the blog. And I was like, wow, this is my moment to give something back. I've gotten so much away from this philosophy of how they were designing things. Um, the 37 Signal website, for example, here's a design company that does design for clients, and the website has no design. Or it has no graphics, I should say. It had a lot of design. It had no graphics. It was a manifest of 37 short, punchy essays on how 37 Signals saw business. And I just thought that was fascinating. Because especially at the time, everything had like flash intros and mouse over animations and all of these graphics. And here's the design company that doesn't do graphics. What is that? So I just became a big fan, and I wrote Jason back with a detailed answer to his question about PHP, and we started trading emails, and Jason decided it was simply easier to hire me than it was to learn how to program in PHP. So we started working together, and we'd worked together on a number of client projects, and uh, around 2003, we had some trouble dealing with those client projects. Everything was just managed on email. And as with anything that's just managed on email, eventually it falls apart. Eventually, person get, doesn't get the right version of the, the comp that they're supposed to approve or whatever it is. And we just thought, this seems silly. There's got to be a better way. We're making technology. We know how to program. We know how to design. Can't we just make a system so it isn't such a mess, so we don't have to lean on email so much? So that's what we did. And that was Basecamp. We started creating Basecamp in the summer of 2003, and I built it alongside going to school, again, with heavy constraints of, I'm pursuing my degree, 
And I also like to rollerblade. I like to go out with friends. I'm not just in it for 100 hours a week. So I had all these other things going on. And then I was building Basecamp on the side with Jason and the rest of 37 Signals. So I had about 10 hours a week to make that happen. And it took us uh, just over six months. We released the first version of Basecamp in February of 2004. And during that process, I was also learning a new programming language. I just picked up uh, this little-known programming language at the time called Ruby. Um, And Ruby, when I picked it up, didn't have a lot of stuff to help you how to build web applications or websites. So I built that to basically just build Basecamp. And that was what became Ruby on Rails, which uh, I then released open source in late 2004. So I think that's pretty much the the trip. Wow, that's that's amazing. so one of the things you said that was interesting was that you were spending around 10 hours a week working on this. And I know you have an upcoming book. Uh, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Um, I wonder if you could kind of shed some light on this kind of work-life philosophy and balance. Yeah, so the question I often get, or the accusation, I should rather say, that I often get when I talk about 40 hours a week being enough is, yeah, that's fine for you to say now. Basecamp is this big success, and you don't even have to program Ruby on Rails anymore. There's all these contributors. Um, But I'm sure when you got started, you probably worked 100 hours a week, right? It's just taken as an assumption that anyone who ends up building something uh, of note, they started out pouring everything that they had, 100% of their mental capacity into the thing, because otherwise it would be impossible. So when I say... Well, that's not how I did it. That's not how we did it. Usually I'm faced with this look of incredulity, right? They just cannot believe that that is actually true, that um, we were building Basecamp on 10 hours a week. And the funny thing about the 10 hours is the reason I know so specifically was that I was building 37 Signals for the time. This was a consulting project. Um, The first version of Basecamp was built at about 385 hours spread out over the time it took us to to build it. So I know in quite specific detail how long it took because this was this was how I was uh, kind of paying for my technology. Um, it's funny to look back at now, but Jason was paying me $15 an hour uh, in early 2000. This was obviously at a time where the dollar was a little bit stronger against uh, the Danish crowner. And I wasn't even getting paid in dollars, right? Because what I wanted most of all, I just wanted some technology. So he would send me like an iPod when that came out, the first iPod. I'd get like an an, an iBook, one of the first uh, um, uh, Mac uh, laptops that ran OS X, which was new at the time. So I'd just get all this stuff um, that Jason would, would order in, and he would pay the invoices in that, basically. Um But that just means that I have this very specific recollection. I think sometimes origin stories... Is, sort of they get more airbrushed over time. And I'm sure there's some airbrushing involved here too. And it wasn't just, so I spent or I built 10 hours a week, but I also spent some time above that doing some Ruby programming and so on. So it's not like it's just exactly that, but it wasn't 100 hours a week. It wasn't even 80 hours a week. And it surely was not even 40 hours a week because I was going to school full time and um, I was doing the things that someone going to college would do and participate in life and not just lock me into a room and, and do nothing else than the pursuit of, of business or whatever else have you. So I put that out there as a story of basically saying, you know what, um, this may not be common. 
it may be more common that you hear origin stories of, oh yeah, and we just worked day and night, and it was all all nighters, and it was all these hundred hours a week, and we slept under our tables, and all this heroic action that we needed to perform to get our thing off the ground. And okay, I mean, sure, some people did that. I'm just saying. I don't think that's necessary. And in fact, in many cases, I think it's detrimental. And I think people end up doing worse work when they work like that. So I'm taking all of those experience, 20 years of working the way I've been working with Jason, with an entire company that works the way that I'm talking about here. And that's what It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work is about. Uh, pushback against this idea that to do great things, or even to do good things, or even to be content doing things, that you have to be completely absorbed in just one activity for however long it takes for that thing to be a success. Um, we try to put out a different ideal and say, uh, first of all, what are you chasing? Uh, a lot of people are like, well, I have to, I have to put all this in because. I want to be this enormous thing. Like, what are your aspirations? Start there. What are your goals? Um, why are they to be the biggest thing ever? Why is why is that a goal in itself? And maybe if you've set your sights on something that's both both more plausible, realistic, and fulfilling in many ways, um, you'd be better off. And then once you have those goals pegged to a more sustainable place. You can design work practices around that that are healthy, sustainable, maintainable. As I said, we've been doing this for 20 years. And um, being in technology, I often also get the question, so so what's next? Like, essentially, when are you going to sell your company or um, pursue something else? Because there's this assumption that no one could keep up the rigor of building a technology company for 20 years and come out on the other side and want more. Because there's just the stereotype that it is one definition of hell, right? That it is this death march all the time. And if that's the image you have in your head, that someone is just someone sleeping under the desk working 100 hours a week, yeah, of course you'd ask, like, when are you done with that torture regiment? When, when are you getting out of that? But if it's not, then why would you get out of that? What is it that I'm going to do that's so different from what, what it is that I'm already doing? That makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the one of the really interesting things that Ratika and I have experienced um, as we've been building our business is uh, a lot of times we've either put things off to the side and come back to them months later, or run into these delays. And when we did, we often found that we came up with better ideas for ways to do what we wanted to do that got us farther along than if we had just been sitting there working on them the entire time tirelessly. A hundred percent. Taking breaks, recharging. That's where the big leaps of productivity are hidden. And it's so funny, too, because there's lots of people in technology who believe the heroic myths, for example, of the 10x programmer, that some programmers and some people in general are just 10 times as productive as, as other people. How do you think that is? Do you think it's because they type faster, that they, they type 10 times as quickly as another programmer, that that's how they're so much quicker? Of course it's not. It's because they have better insights. They have better ideas. They think more clearly. They have insights that are leaps, not just strolls, right? And to get those insights, you have to be in a special place. And that place is well-rested, well-nourished, well, um, 
slept, well, uh, sort of situated. At least that's my belief, that that's where I got my great insights from. It was not when I had worked all-nighters, which I've done several times in my career. The ideas that I would get at the end of an all-nighter were usually the ideas that I would then have to spend another three days cleaning up afterwards because it would be a total mess. So you can't do this kind of work. You can't do creative work just through sheer effort. There's some of that, and I'm also fond of um, Gary Vee saying, you got to do the work. I don't agree that the work is 80 hours or 18 hours a day, but I do believe in you got to do the work. And as we talked about, I did the work for many, many years before we even got close to sniffing something that looked like a success that other people would point to and say, oh, that's something that's working. So it's not about not putting in the effort. And it's not about not being patient about that. I absolutely believe in that. Um, It's just about how do you go about doing it? And... uh, I'd rather think of it in the sense that, well, to to get to this level of mastery or skill that I need to do the stuff that I have to do, that's going to take time. That's going to take years. But through those years, there, I actually make greater progress faster if I just sort of take it balanced and I invest the 40 hours a week or the 10 hours a week, as we talked about, that I did with Basecamp, right? David, you... You bring up these points at an interesting time in our world's trajectory. Technology is in a very different place than it was in 1999. And people tend to feel that they have no other choice but to go through these routines to even keep up. And something that we've noticed in the story hackers orbit of working with geopol- in the area of geopolitics is Technology is accelerating a lot of decay, so banking systems are collapsing, governments are changing. And as you're talking, I keep hearing these motifs of mastery video games. And out in the world, I keep hearing about people solving problems using gamification and game mechanics. And I ask you this question from the perspective of someone who doesn't game, who's fascinated with gaming, but what are some things that you learned as a gamer that you have carried through? to adopt these philosophies? That, that's a great question. Uh, I have uh, two boys, one almost six and one almost three. And that has forced me or invited me to take a look at parenting as a general concept and to think about what were the things that worked for me when I was a kid and how do I want to put those same opportunities in front of my kids? And one of the answers is video games, is play, is focused play. And I learned so much from video games. I credit video games with all sorts of things. But the perseverance of getting better at something, leveling up and sticking with it and realizing that um, you have to put in the time Again, it's not about putting in the 18 hours, although I, I surely did game for 18 hours some days, I'm sure. Um, but just that there is this trajectory where you can get better, that video games has this amazing mm, opportunity of, of especially allowing kids to influence the world in ways that are quite limited for a lot of kids outside of that domain, that most of the time, most kids don't get to call the shots. They don't get to decide 
when to get up in the morning. They don't get to decide um, whether or not to go to school most days. They don't get to decide all sorts of things that um, they want to decide. So here's video games offering them a universe where they can make all sorts of choices authentically on their own and learn just how much power is in that. So I took that away from uh, video games. I'd say that when gamification first came out as a concept, I thought, oh, this is really clever. I mean, I like video games. Uh, The dynamics of video games must work well in in other domains. This sounds great. I, I don't think that part of it sounds so great anymore. I think usually when people use the word gamification, what they're really thinking about is, is brain hacking. And usually brain hacking in ways to get people scrolling on some feed for more hours every day or uh, get them addicted to likes or retweets or any of the other um, sort of hacks that social media companies and other internet companies are using against users to keep them addicted. And that part I have no great respect for because it's not mastery. That's not progress in any of the fond ways I think back of all the video games that I played. That's not what I take away from it. But I do take away from it this sense of um, immersion, of flow. Uh, My first experience with flow was surely video games. This idea where you're playing the game and you look up and you're like, wait, what? It's been two hours? How's that possible? It feels like it's been 10 minutes. Um, Getting addicted to flow, I'd say that is an addiction worth having. Getting addicted to mastery, getting addicted to uh, autonomy. Um, Those are all sort of pillars of motivation that you can draw on for the rest of your life. So I've made it a point and been exceptionally pleased to see that uh, both of my boys are happy fans of video games. And uh, a lot of the time we spent together, we spent together playing video games. We're roughly the same age, so we probably were playing some of the same video games back in, back in the day. I used to play a lot of video games. I'm curious, what what were some of your favorite video games? So I played the bulk of my early video games on computers. And in Europe, the computer of choice was the Amiga, uh, Commodore Amiga 500. Um, that wasn't my first computer. I had an, an Amstrad first, which was, which was kind of funny because... What I really wanted was I wanted a Commodore 64. That was the machine that everyone in the neighborhood had, but I, we couldn't afford a new computer. So what happened instead was that my, my dad ended up trading like a, a record player for some guy who had this Amstrad. I didn't know what an Amstrad was, but hey, it's a computer and it played games. So that was my first computer. I got that when I was six years old. And um, what were some of the games in that? I forget the specific titles of that. I, but I have this very vivid memory, and this is from I'm like six years old, of like this frog trying to get out of a, of a pit. It's trapped underground, and you have to get above ground, basically. And the video games back then were brutal. They were hard. And um, nonetheless, that just that got me addicted. And then onto the Amiga and then played a, a bunch of games on the Amiga. And then all the way through, I, I probably switched from computers to, to consoles around the PlayStation when the PlayStation 1 first came out. And just uh, tons of tons of great games. I remember for the PlayStation in particular, Wipeout, huge fan of that. That got me into the whole idea of racing, I, I'd actually say. I played a bunch of it racing video games since then and then once I got the opportunity sat in a real race car and connected those two experiences and went like oh this is fun I'm going to do some more of this 
Um, so yeah, I I have played. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of games over the years, and uh, some of my very fondest childhood memories are from from video games. You used an interesting expression a few moments ago, leveling up. What does that mean to you? It's really the pursuit of mastery, leveling up your skills, leveling up your capabilities, getting better. And I think that that is the feedback loop that I'm addicted to, of seeing I'm at a certain level of proficiency and then opening my eyes to all the factors that are part of what the next level looks like. A lot of the times, I think leveling up is about having a wider field of view and paying attention to more things. So, for example, I got into photography about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And when I first got into photography, I didn't know what it took to take a good picture. I just knew, like, oh, that looks like a pretty picture. But what is that, actually? There's a bunch of mechanics. There's... um, rule of thirds and there's white balance and there's focus and there's all these um, ways of getting it, the ISO and the focal range and, and all these factors and just learning the whole domain, that's part of leveling up. If you go from not knowing any of those things to all of a sudden knowing those things, you'll start recognizing, oh, that's a good picture because either it's following the rules or it's not following the rules. But you can appreciate the um, aspect of it. You can analyze it. You can break it down and you can learn from it. And that process of, of absorbing a domain and learning the terms and learning the techniques and learning the principles and the values and so forth is um, just intensely enjoyable. And it's something I continue to to do. I had the opportunity or the opportunity was forced upon me recently to dive deep into uh, air quality. So we built a new house recently. We moved into the house and my wife got sick from formaldehyde poisoning because the air quality in, in one of the rooms was poor. And it was poor because the room was not designed correctly and it didn't have proper ventilation. And this was this whole new world of AVAC engineering that I dove in because I wanted to fix the problem that um, my wife got sick from bad air from from formaldehyde. That just seemed ridiculous to me. It's like, how did we just end up building a new house that makes us sick? That's sick. So I set about trying to figure out what it would take to fix that. And in the process of that, had to start from that scratch of knowing nothing about how ventilation or air conditioning or any of these things work to going through all the steps, learning all the terms, learning how you measure these things in the proper way, the scientific method of of figuring this stuff out, and then getting to a point where I could actually converse with experts in the field and figure out, like, what do we need to do and what do we need to change? And while it started out from a pretty terrible position, right, I got sick of something, that process of then learning a domain and leveling up um, was still the kind of stuff that uh, that I enjoy and the kind of stuff I credit with arriving at the position that I'm in, both in business and in programming, in writing, in photography, race car driving, in video games, in any of the domains that I've jumped into, um, 
it's been that process of trying to level up, figuring out where are the steps, how do I get to the next one, how do I get better, and how do I not plateau, or if I plateau, how do I find a new route so I can keep going, to just feel that rush of excitement and of going, I'm objectively better. I'm objectively wiser, cleverer, have more knowledge, more skillful. Um, I think that's a core source of happiness. So changing directions a little bit, um, one of the one of the major things going on right now for a lot of people who are doing things in Silicon Valley, especially, but elsewhere, is this idea of uh, imposter syndrome and, and self-doubt. And I wonder, you know, going back to when you were uh, consulting and starting out with your you know, building your first company, were, were there ever any moments where it, it wasn't so clear that you were necessarily going to create this this incredibly successful thing? And how did you kind of deal with those? A hundred percent. When I first started doing programming, I never thought myself as a programmer or that I was going to do programming. This was sort of just something I had to do to get the things I wanted. And I wanted to publish video games reviews online. So I had to figure out how the ASP and the PHP and the other systems we used back then kind of worked because it was just such a hassle to constantly have to go to another programmer and ask that person to make the changes I wanted. It would just be more immediate. I would have a more direct influence on the world if I could do these things myself. So I learned programming as a skill in that regard, not as a pursuit. And it took a long time until I fell in love with programming as it was something I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I just didn't, I didn't treat it in that way. I didn't treat it in the way of, oh, I'm learning programming now because um, I want to get on this path of, of, of making something great in programming. No, I learned programming because I wanted to build some specific things and this was just what I needed to do. And given the fact that I hadn't internalized the idea of being a programmer, I had a very um, distanced relationship with programming that I didn't know a bunch of things and I had to ask people all the time and I was very inefficient and very um, just poor at programming. And the funny thing about programming is... Um, I tried to learn programming probably about four times before it clicked. I tried to learn programming at six years old when I got my first computer and tried to type in a, a game from the back of a magazine. Um, then I tried to learn it again, I think, at about maybe 12 or something. Um, and then I think I tried again around like 15 or so. And these were all failed attempts. I wanted to learn programming because I wanted to do some stuff with programming, but I, I couldn't figure it out. And I can still remember the things I couldn't understand, which is just a fascinating concept, like variables, for example. I could not grok the idea that you would reassign it to something, that it would change what it was. And that was just such a weird weird thing. And then I can remember other programming techniques like recursion, like, uh, methods or functions that call themselves. It was just something I could not wrap my head around. And I, I have these vivid memories of trying to crack it of, of getting my brain to somehow turn the wheels in the way where this would be understandable. And they just wouldn't. And it then took sometimes years where I had to leave it and not 
think about it and then come back to it. And then the fourth time was when some of it clicked. And then later on, more of it started uh, clicking faster. So I've been in those exact shoes as well. What I perhaps didn't have was this constant bombardment of imagery and tweets and people telling me how wonderful and great they already were for me to compare myself against poorly. Because I think that was one of the wonders of the early internet, that we didn't have those things. Um, I was learning most of my programming from actual books, like O'Reilly animal books. And not having the social aspect of it made some things hard. Some things are very extremely easy today. Like you can go in Stack Overflow and you have some problem. There's somewhere, someone around the world that can help you. I mean, mind-blowing. But it also has negative effects, I think, where you're constantly reminded that there's thousands of people who are extremely good at this thing you can still not understand. Right? Like, are, are you stupid? Like, wh why aren't you getting it? Right? And I think that that's a... That comparison is not helpful. And I think the comparison, uh, it'd be easier to learn, and you'd probably learn quicker if you weren't constantly comparing yourself to other people. If you were just comparing yourself to yourself, am I progressing? Am I getting better? Um, that's a healthier way of doing it. And I'm happy that I got to learn programming mostly in a time where I wasn't forced to constantly do these comparisons. Now, that's interesting you... You talk about social media because now it's you can't escape it. It's pervasive. And you're still building. You're achieving new levels of mastery in new areas in education. And social media is such a part of what you do. How do you strike that balance? I have a very ambivalent relationship with social media. And I recognize all the ills of it. And I also recognize that there are many goods of it. The fact that I can broadcast my thoughts on all sorts of different topics every single day on Twitter is a genuine source of satisfaction. It does feel like walking around in the community and trying to influence things in a direction I think is good and to sometimes see some effect from that is incredibly satisfying. But it's also part of a system and a machine that's incredibly unsatisfying and detrimental to people, to societies, to professions. I think there's all sorts of nasty things, uh, and not just nasty in the explicit thing way of, of, of Twitter being a place where strangers would scream obscenities at you. I mean, that's just so on its face nasty, but also nasty in the sense of the addiction that it causes. And um, I, I'm not above that, right? Like we all get the same dopamine rush when we see a tweet that does well or someone likes our picture on Instagram. And that's the insidiousness of it, that they're hacking core human functions, that it's just illicit brain reacting. And even if you're observing it, and even if you're aware of it, the illicit brain is still acting. Right? You can know that these things are unhealthy, and, and especially if I've been on some Twitter rant, for example, that's taking off, that 
have this unhealthy obsession, as do most people, to like, all right, let me check it again. Let me check it again. Let me check it again. Like, oh, someone new might have replied. And most of the time, that's not the helpful part, right? For me, the helpful part is I got to say my piece on something. And for some people, that was a new angle. And that's satisfying to give someone a new angle and something they hadn't considered in that light or phrase it in a way that leads to better understanding. I think that's a really positive aspect of it that you get to have essentially like this class of uh, a lecture. I mean, I'm not afraid to call it that. I lecture people all the time. Um, most of it is because I'm trying to lecture myself and that when I think through things on Twitter, it's usually because I'm thinking through things for myself. I'm trying to refine how I actually do view things. And, and oftentimes I change my mind on things. But it's also an opportunity to, to actually do a public lecture. And a public lecture with a very small investment of friction. I think if anything, social media has gotten extremely good at removing friction. That a lot of the lectures that I give on Twitter would not exist in any other form because I would not take the time to capture them in any other form. And maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe the lectures would be better if there was more friction and there was more of a filter and it wasn't just every harebrained idea that popped into my head that goes from inception to typing in 15 seconds. If there was more consideration, that probably would be a good thing. But I kind of live with that ambiguity and I live with that knowledge that of all the things that I say, most of them should probably have been filtered out. But of the things that um, do make it and do have an impact, oftentimes it's because there is no filter. That oftentimes the thing I'll treat is like, eh, this is stupid. Like everyone knows this or whatever. And I'll, I'll tweet it out. I'll write it up or I share it in some other form. And it's the things that have the greatest resonance. I did a talk at Y Combinator's startup school in 2008 called um, The Secret of Making Money Online. And I almost did not give that talk because I thought it was so banal. And I had a great amount of insecurity about going on stage because I felt like everyone's going to look up at me and think, oh my God, this is so stupid. Like he's just saying, like, what is he saying? Make more money than you spend? Like how is that worthy of anything? And... I mean, it may still have been stupid, but lots of people like that, right? It had an influence and it provided a adjustment of, of the way some people saw entrepreneurship and why they were doing the way they were doing. And I still get feedback from that talk 11, 12 years later from this had an impact on me. So I use that example to remind myself that I'm actually not a ex very good gauge of whether the things of what things that I say will have an impact and other times I'll write something up or I'll post something on medium and think oh man this is this is deep for me I think I, I arrived at some insight that was really important for me and like crickets nothing no response it just didn't trigger and then other times I'll share something as I said that feels like it's banal and and boom all of a sudden it blows up. So given the fact that I don't know, I can't pick the winning angles, the winning ideas, I try to play it as a portfolio that I'm, I 
have to take some shots that feel stupid in the moment um, to arrive at the, the, the things that then work. And then I liken it to startup, or not startup, stand-up comedy. A lot of comedians will have a lot of ideas about material, and some of the best comedians in the world will go on stage and they'll tell jokes that no one laughs at. Then they'll keep doing that, and they'll notice which of the jokes that they have people laugh at. And then they'll take those jokes, and then they'll build up an ensemble of jokes until they have enough to have a whole show that they can show to a lot of people. So that's what's happened with the books in some regard. Um, Rework in particular was a collection of the greatest hits, that we almost wrote nothing original in Rework. We took 10 years of material, and then we distilled it down to the things that we knew resonated with people because it had resonated in the past. And then we published that and voila, it looks like we have a book full of great ideas. And it wasn't because we just sat down and came up with these ideas and then put them in a book and then magically they were all good. No, it was because it was all concept that we had tried on an actual audience and had seen in their eyes that it worked and that it helped them. And then we took those things and put it in a book. And all of a sudden, you can have 70 essays where most of them feel like, oh, that's pretty good material. It was because there were 700 essays or 7,000 essays or at least 7,000 ideas that got distilled into 70 that were the best ones. So that is part of that process I'm doing on Twitter. Like, I think I looked recently and maybe I've, I've tweeted 40,000 times over the past 12 years I've been on Twitter. Very few of those were truly great ideas that should go in a book. But I can't find the ideas that should go in a book unless I go through that. To, to end up with, with 40 good ideas, maybe you have to start with 40,000 bad tweets. That's a quote to remember. <laughs> um, so one of the things I, I learned about you recently is that stoicism uh, is, is important to you and it's something that has a, a large influence in your life. And you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what its meaning is to you and well, we'll go from there. Sure. So the reason I came to like Stoicism was because I recognized a lot of my own thoughts in it. I recognized a lot of my own unpolished thoughts and thought patterns, really, not just thoughts, but thought patterns and techniques of how to deal with experiences in the very refined framework that is Stoicism. Well, at least comparatively refined to, to my sort of beta homegrown ideas on, on these things. And it was just such a revelation to here I am processing the world in a certain way thinking maybe I'm the only one who thinks like this. And then encountering Stoicism and Stoic ideas and going like, wow, 2,000 years ago, someone thought in exactly these same ways? That is amazing. And that recognition uh, of some of the core principles, for example, negative visualization, was something that just went like, okay, there's clearly some kindred spirit here. That if they, if I independently arrived at a very similar technique um, to one of the stoic uh, core techniques of negative visualization, then let me see what else they have. And I kept pulling on the 
uh, on the thread and kept finding things and kept finding perspectives and way to view life in, in, in a really grand yet practical sense. So I've been exposed to all sorts of philosophy over the years and some of it had been sort of mildly interesting and, and I've always had a sort of an affinity for reading about that and how people think. But what struck me about Stoicism was just how utterly practical it was and that it was derived from the same way and the same challenges of life that 2,000 years ago, they were worried about the same things. They were worried about overwork. They were worried about what other people thought. They were worried about essentially imposter syndrome. They were worried about all the same anxieties and problems that we face today. They were the same. And the human mind in that regard hasn't evolved very much. In fact, maybe it's uh, regressed in some regards that there was a, a greater focus and uh, attention to try to wrestle with that in productive ways. So I read The Guide to the Good Life, which is a wonderful introduction to Stoicism. It draws on a bunch of the main texts, and I really like that. But then I drove into the original sources, uh, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which I actually just listened to again almost completely on a drive down from uh, Northern California about a couple of days ago. Uh, I think it's about five hours on the Audible version of it. It was just such a wonderful reminder of the wisdom that, that I've found in Stoicism and the tranquility that comes from it and, and the reminders that you need. Um, when I first started reading books, I read mostly technical books. Um, I've never been big on novels or uh, what have you. I just I wanted practical tools. So I, want, I read a bunch of technical stuff, um, both in terms of programming, and then I read a bunch of business books. And out of maybe the hundred books or more that I read in those two domains, I can count maybe two that I wanted to read again. Then I found uh, books on Stoicism. And I, I, I found that here were books I wanted to read again. Not because I didn't know what they had to say, but because I needed to be reminded about what they had to say. And that was a breakthrough in some regard. Of It's not just about the accumulation of knowledge. It's about the constant rejuvenation of the ideas that are truly important and that will naturally decay from your present mind if you don't frequently refresh. So the Stoic writings have taught me that. And it's funny because, again, this is a banal insight and you go, there's Bible study groups for exactly this purpose, not because people hadn't read the Bible, because they feel like that book has something to teach them that they need to be reminded about on a frequent basis. And I never resonated with that as, as an atheist. I, that just seemed distinct in a way that I thought I couldn't learn anything from because I didn't think I could learn anything from the very theistic approach to it. But the principles and the practices of reminding yourself about what actually matters – that I could have learned something from earlier. And it just took finding stoicism until those lessons sunk in. So 
I think that that um, was very pleased with making that breakthrough. And it was one of those breakthroughs in thinking where you go, in some ways, when I think about to when I started 20 years ago, a lot of the thought patterns and approaches and ideas that I have, they're the same. They didn't change that much. They may have mutated a bit. They may have switched a bit. They may have been applied in new contexts. But a lot of the core operating system that I have in terms of how I think about things in a professional and business sense, there's not a lot of involvement there. <laughs> um, but then this domain of, of philosophy, especially Stoic philosophy and later on existential philosophy, that was something where I felt like later in life I had true breakthroughs. I opened up new parts of the brain that I hadn't accessed in that way before. And that was really invigorating. And it came back to that level of, or that idea of leveling up, that I felt like, wow, I was leveling up my core insight on the human condition, which doesn't get much more critical than that. And maybe that is, again, just the natural evolution of life. I'm 38. Um, I'll be 40 soon enough. And I think it's just a natural reaction to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and think, what am I doing here? You know, it's funny you you speak of leveling up and that you're still wrestling with stuff. And many of the people listening, they'll look at all of the things that you've achieved and they they want to achieve just one. They want to write a book. They want to start a software company. They want to race. They want to get some more racing. And I'd love to learn, like, what are you wrestling with right now? What is that next phase of leveling up for you? That's a great question. One of the great insights I've taken away from learning a lot of different things to a reasonable level of mastery is that the process is quite similar. Whether you're learning how to drive a race car, you're learning how to program or how to write a book or start a business or t photography, it's not that dissimilar that you start out knowing nothing. Um, and that's a gift. And it's a very special time. The beginner's mind is a magical place that lots of people keep trying to get back to. And there's whole branches of philosophy focused on trying to recapture the beginner's mind. And it was the beginner's mind, it was the ignorance that led me to create Ruby on Rails. If I had known everything that I know now about what it takes to run a open source project at this level, and that had been presented to me, oh yeah, here's uh, 20 years of work with lots of ungrateful strangers on the internet yelling at you constantly over all sorts of decisions, maybe I would have gone like, that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Let me not do any of those things. But the ignorance of not knowing the limits of my own capacity, I was just learning Ruby at the time when I created Ruby on Rails, essentially. Ruby on Rails is more or less like my first project in Ruby. I just stuck with it. But it was the beginner's mind that allowed me to do that. So it was that gift of ignorance that... Uh, got me started. But then, of course, after that, you go through these phases of then learning what the grand constellation is, of what the terms are, what the major things are, and they're really fussy still, and you don't know how they all work together. And then things get clearer, and you feel like you have, okay, I have somewhat of a solid ground. I know what people sort of are talking about most of the time, but I don't have any input on my own. I'm just still absorbing. 
then you get to some level of proficiency where you understand. Okay, now I know what people are talking about. It's not that fuzzy anymore, and I know how things work together. And now I'm starting to form some opinions of my own about how things interact and how you can do things better, how you can do things differently. And as you go through all these phases, it's the same progression. So once you've been through that once or twice, you're no longer surprised that when you start in a new domain that you are ignorant. Like when I started learning about air quality, I knew going in, I know nothing. Um, I have the beginner's mind here. That's a gift that'll allow me to ask a bunch of questions of of professionals um, that seem maybe dumb or irrelevant or then sometimes insightful because I'm taking just something I know from some other domain of systems thinking or or whatever and applying it to this new domain. Um, And in any case, this is just a phase I'm going to go through. There's no way I'm going to learn something where I can just jump over those phases, where I just jump over being a beginner, where I just jump over being an intermediary. When you've been through that process, you simply accept that that is the process and it takes some time. So for me now, that's sort of where I am with um, a lot of philosophy reading, that I'll read some um, philosophy book, um, like Being in Time, where I go, this is really dense in a way where I don't really understand most of what's going on here. Um, but if I stick will it with it, I will at some point. And then you read more and you read more and you read more and you try to get it from different sources. I found, especially for learning philosophy, YouTube is wonderful. There's a bunch of um, great YouTube channels where you have someone else basically retell the material to you in a modern interpretation and you go, ah, now I kind of understand it. And then you can go back to the original text and all of a sudden that starts making sense. And that really feels like, okay, now I'm leveling up. What I did not, I read these pages before and I didn't really understand them. Now I have a bunch more context. Now I have a different angle of looking at it and understanding of some of the core concepts. Oh, now it makes sense. Or at least it makes a little more sense. And that's just, that's really satisfying. So that's the step. I'm at such a beginner's face on on the quest of philosophy right now that I can just, uh, I can cherish it. Because what I've also found is that of all the different faces, mastery is not necessarily the best. Race car driving is another example. I've been driving race cars now for over 10 years. And I still enjoy driving race cars, but I don't enjoy the as much as I did when I was first learning. When first learning to drive the car, it was so overwhelming. It needed 110% of all the brain power I had available in such a way that I would close the door, turn on the engine, boom, flow. Just enter the stage, right? Um, Being completely engrossed in the activity to the point where there's nothing else in the world than throttle, brake, steer, counter steer, making around the corner. Such an engrossing experience is just, it's a version of bliss. And now, because I've actually gotten so much better at driving race cars that it doesn't require most of the time, 110%, it's not as enjoyable. So I wish in some regards that I could just go back and be an intermediary or even a beginner and erase some of that and then get to have those experiences again. Then in other domains, for example, with programming, I do enjoy the mastery level. I do enjoy um, having the foundation there and being able to simply use it. But that's not the same. And and, 
it depends on the domain. Some domains are just simply enjoyable to employ and use, and other domains are enjoyable to learn and sort of internalize. And then once you've learned it, okay, a little bit of the enjoyment falls out of it. But that's okay. I mean, I can go through a lot of things where if it, I can have 10 years of true enjoyment pursuing one hobby, and then you realize, okay, that's the end of that, and then let's move on to something else. So the the 24-hour Le Mans race, am I saying that correctly? Well enough. Okay. Uh, I'd like to think that for 24 hours you were listening to audiobooks on Marcus Aurelius while you were doing that drive. Uh, but you know, I'm curious to know kind of what was your mindset while you were doing that? And it's such a uh, battle of wits almost to keep driving for 24 hours on a competitive level. I'm curious to know what you were thinking. Yeah, so the 24 hours of Le Mans was always the Olympus for me in race car driving. Once I got involved enough that I could see a trajectory, that was where the trajectory was leading. That was where I wanted to go. So I got the opportunity in 2012 after I've driven race cars for a couple of years to participate in that race. And it was it was wonderful in, in so many ways. And the beginner's mind to it was, was wonderful in a particular way. The first time I did the race, I've, I've done the race seven times now, was was just magical because you show up and you have all this conception about what it takes to drive for 24 hours and then you actually do it. And in some ways it's that, but in many ways it's very different. Um, and it was such a battle against how much have I leveled up? Have I leveled up enough to do this? Um, and realizing that and in the physical sense of, of doing it and getting up after an hour and a half of sleep uh, at 3.30 in the morning, and then they're like, all right, you got to get back in the car in like 35 minutes, get ready. And you're like, uh, what? And and you get all your gear up, and you're standing there with the excitement and, and thinking like, i, I got to go out there, and I, I can't fail. I, I mean, I have two co-drivers. There's a whole team. Like, It's not just me here. I'm not just playing a video games where I can just hit reset. There's criticality that's a different level and not standing just the mortality part of it too of driving a race car 200 miles an hour in the dark uh, there's a sense of obligation um, that you don't think about perhaps as much when you're fantasizing about what this is going to be but that's the fun of it right the fun of it is just actually experiencing these ideas that you have and how it's going to be and then realizing yeah, okay, in some ways they were what you thought, in many ways they were not. This is why we do things, to be surprised, to be challenged, to to, um, to live through it. And then I, I kept doing the race. It was just such a wonderful physical challenge too, especially I, I, when I drove the race in, in the prototype cars that are extremely physical to drive, pull upwards of 4Gs. There's just a satisfaction from fatigue and from pushing that boundary that's um, really satisfying in a way that is so alien to how I usually work because as we talk about usually I don't have any of this stuff I don't do all-nighters I don't do any of this and all of a sudden there's this I gotta be awake for 36 hours I gotta drive a race car I gotta it's such an alien uh, experience that that's why it's good I do it once a year that's when I do the 24 hour race and, and or sometimes twice a year, but it's not a common thing. Most of my life is like, oh, 
it's uh, five o'clock. Like, I don't, I, maybe I was in the middle of something. I'm going to put it aside. The kids are home and we're going to play or we're going to go swimming or we're going to have dinner. We're, like, it's a very um, sort of easy environment in that sense that there, there aren't all these pressures. Like, I don't have a stressful job. Uh, maybe it sometimes looks like that from the outside, but that's not what it feels like. I feel like I have very little stress in my work. And I do think that having constant stress is one of the key killers. Having constant stress will lead to all sorts of medical complications and will kill you. But having some stress, sometimes at your own choosing, that can be good for you. That makes sense. Um, I'm curious, kind of tying that into stoicism, uh, have you found stoicism to be helpful in kind of these competing at a high level with things like racing or uh, you know, trying to do something with, that requires a lot of performance outside of racing? Hugely. Especially in racing, I'd say. In racing, there's so many things you cannot control. As a driver, you have the power of steering the car, but you didn't make the car. And there are different kinds of cars, and there are different cars that are better on some tracks and worse on other tracks. You didn't even put it together. You didn't set it up. There's engineers, there's mechanics, there's all these other people you have to rely on that have a great impact on your performance. So you cannot derive it down to just like, if we fail, that's my fault, or if we succeed, that was my fault. And I think that that's a good metaphor in general for society at large never your fault solely if you fail. It's never your fault solely if you succeed. Um, and it also, the stoic mindset helps you keep that in mind, that um, why am I getting worked up over this? Race cars fail all the time. If my race car fails, that is natural. Um, to get upset about that, okay, there's an impulse where you go like, oh man, that's a shame. But then this is the natural order of things. This is what happens. So I think the uh, primary takeaway I have from Stoicism is to separate the perception from the reaction. You see something that happens, then you choose how you want to react. Most people don't choose very consciously how they want to react. They simply react out of instinct, or passion, and those reactions are often poor. They're not adjusted for the reasonable. We get mad over all sorts of things that make no sense getting mad about. Take the Twitter example again. Right now, there's probably uh, 2,000 people complaining that their flight is delayed. Just that fact alone. If there's 2,000 other people complaining that their flights are delayed, this is common. Why are you not expecting that flights are delayed? Why are you getting all riled up over that, over the common nature of things? What good does that do you? Are you better off being mad about the completely expectable? I don't think you are. So learning to separate perception from reaction and practicing that is one of the, if not the greatest lesson of stoicism. And that is hard. I've ranted on Twitter about my flight being late, even if I use that as an example of people being silly. Because the natural draw is so strong. You want others to share in your outrage. But this is why I needed to get another dose of Marcus Aurelius, even though I read the book two times. And I got reminded driving back down that reaction and perception are two separate things. And you can disconnect the link and you can choose. 
And you can live a better life if you are more considerate in your reactions. And that almost all of life is inside of your reactions. So almost anything that happens, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's only bad or good, depending on how you take it. You know, it's it's interesting you, you talk about stress because people feel a lot of stress right now. And there are so many external pressures and bullshit that people are wading through just to live everyday life. And I'm I'm kind of wondering, like, did you ever experience that state of reality where stress may have been a constant or it may have been in your subconscious that you reoriented? And if so, what what was that change like? Yes. So when I was working for other people and they were making poor decisions and those poor decisions affected me and especially when those poor decisions robbed me of my autonomy or of doing a good job, my ability to do a good job, that was stressful. And I only recognize that in hindsight because I don't have perhaps, like, I don't have a recollection of a stress reaction that's this frazzled, like, ah, uh, sense of it. It was more going numb, that the stress was robbing me of the energy to want things, to do things. And I could end up spending eight hours at a job that was robbing me of my autonomy and my pursuit of mastery and, and ability to do a good job and then come home and feel completely drained rather than energized. And I think that is a form of a stress reaction. And that was terrible. But I think now there's even more of it. Now there's more of the ah uh, stress too that you add on top of that through the way we work, through the way a lot of people work, through the way the workday goes and how it's chopped up into these little work moments and how it's filled with constant interruption and how it's preventing us from doing the things we really want to do that the satisfaction of going to work is to do work. It's not all this other stuff. And if you're prevented from doing good work and making progress, you're going to end up unhappy. And that's going to be stressful. So we simply have to allow people to do good work in long stretches of uninterrupted time for them to be happy and for the stress to dissipate from their life. And there are all these specific ways we work that are preventing that, whether that's the open office or it's the constant running chat room or all these things are choices. We could make different choices. It doesn't have to be like this. And the sad realization that I've come to, and Jason as well, and the reason we wrote It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work is that we've been making more and more poor choices. The things are getting worse. And they're getting worse in a time when they should be getting better. We have more opportunities. We have more technology. We have all these sorts of things that should help us lead better, more stress-free lives. And yet, we're more frazzled than ever. We're more stressed than ever. We're getting less done than ever. There's something here that's not working. It's time to 
stop the train and inspect the wheels. Like, how did we get here? And how can we take a step back? And some of that came from the fact that how we work at Basecamp. Now, to me, I've worked at Basecamp for 20 years, essentially. I don't see it in the same ways. I see Basecamp when I talk to other people who work at not Basecamp. And then I get the mirror of how we're working at Basecamp. And some of the ways I see people working, I just go like, I, I mean, this is terrible. How, how can people work like this? How can they live like this? How can this be their goals and aspirations? How can we still be talking about the valor of working 120 hours a week? How can we still venerate business leaders who espouse philosophy like this and say like, oh, these are wise people we should be listening to? And just this is madness. This is crazy. And it's elective craziness. This is not being forced upon us. We're internalizing this and we're choosing to work this way. And that's tragic, truly tragic. When you have the choice of going a path that's healthy and good and sane, and then you look at that path and go like, yeah, let's take this nonsense route over here that's going to be completely filled with stress and nonsense and craziness. Let's do that instead. And we chose that. What? I feel like a lot of that also goes on uh, in startup culture right now with uh, kind of this immense focus on hyper growth um, and at all costs, uh, including profitable, sane business models and kind of staged approaches to doing things in which you evaluate and iterate and kind of improve things. Um, I'm wondering... Do you have any any suggestions for, for people who are starting companies uh, to kind of combat that uh, that mindset that's so prevalent out there? Yes. Perhaps the first place to start is to disconnect from the term startup. When we started Basecamp, we didn't think of ourselves as a startup. So we didn't feel that we had to adopt all this startup lore. We didn't feel like we had to follow that path as it was already laid out. But unfortunately, most people do. They characterize starting a new business as a startup. And I like the word startup. I, it's a good word. It's just been hijacked to mean one particular form of startup that usually is this focus on unsustainable hypergrowth, uh, usually with large injection of venture capital. And that just takes you down a very particular path. Not a path I'm particularly fond of and not the only path. We're trying with Basecamp, and Basecamp is not alone by any stretch of imagination. We're just loud about sharing our story. And most companies that work like Basecamp in the non-stereotypical startup way, they don't go around shouting about it. But lots of startup companies shout very loud, and they have a whole encore of people um, amplifying that message because they are incentivized to amplify that message. Oh, look at this kid just made a startup in 18 months, and it's worth $100 million. Isn't that great cover for a magazine? Yeah, it is. It's not a very great cover for a magazine. Oh, look at this company that took 15 years to get to $5 million a year in revenue. 
that's not a sexy story in the same way, even though there are far more stories of the latter than there are the former. And then, of course, you have just a whole ecosystem of, of money around it that is vested in this approach and invested in these timelines and invested in these pressures, pushing that narrative forward. So for Jason and I and others pushing a different narrative, it's pretty uphill. We're shouting in the wind and we've been shouting for 20 years and not that much has changed in the grand narrative in mainstream society about what is a startup. It's still very much defined by this hyper-growth, high-money approach. But we have reached some people, and I get feedback from some of those people uh, regularly telling us, like, we were going down this path. We had our reservations about it. It didn't feel right, but that's just what everyone was telling us until we stumbled across this book or this podcast or this write-up and recognized something in what you were saying that we had already felt ourselves. It's funny, we were talking about my path to stoicism earlier where part of the instant attraction was to recognize some of my own thoughts in stoic philosophy. I'd say the number one reason that people write Jason or I to tell us that they like rework was that they recognize their own thoughts in rework. They already knew these things. They already had these simmerings in their brain, but rework put them on the page and validated them. And that validation was invigorating and powerful, and they now trusted their own instincts. It wasn't so much because we told them something new it was what, that we told them that what they knew was right, or at least that we thought the same thing too, and that that gave them the motivation to actually follow what they believed. I think it's a powerful thing when you're, you know, as you kind of described, you're in a, a sea of all these people telling you that you have to do things a certain way, and you might feel differently, but if you feel like you're the only one who feels differently, it's hard to kind of maintain that that perception. Incredibly hard. And that's one of the key reasons why we keep shouting. That there are lots of people out there who have the same reservations as we do about venture capital or hypergrowth, but are afraid to commit to that because they think they're going to be the only one out. So to show that there is a tribe who believes differently and that there's plenty of room over here and you can self-select is, um, is worth doing. It, uh, it pains me to shepherd this interview to its concluding question, but I know we're running up on time. And uh, I want to throw a curveball out there as we end. Um, David, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about Twitter that you put some ideas out there sometimes and they don't stick. And I kind of wonder... Maybe I wonder if that was the right audience. Maybe you're looking for a new tribe or there's a tribe out there that wants to hear some of those ideas. Can we talk about those? Sure. Um, I think the thing with Twitter and why I like Twitter is that it is a relatively diverse tribe. I have, I don't know, 300,000 followers. So within that space, they're very different people. And I get very different reactions. And one of the funniest sort of patterns I've observed over time is I have opinions about a lot of things. And then 
I'll, I'll put out some opinion and, and someone will reply, well, I usually don't agree with DHH, but this one, this one's really spot on. This one's really right, right? Without having the sort of distance to realize that on everything I say, someone is having that opinion. Like no one agrees with me all of the time. I don't agree with me all of the time, as Jason likes to say. So to think that someone is only, or that you have to make a big display about liking something that someone says because that person has other opinions that you don't agree with, that's a dysfunction of debate and the dysfunction of learning. Um, I follow all sorts of people on Twitter where I agree with maybe 20% of what they say and 80% of what they say I think is like out there in a way where like not just like it's strange or foreign but I have the complete opposite view of it but I'm smarter for it I don't have to follow people where I agree with 100% what do I learn from that oh you just said everything I already know again thank you wonderful right there's no pressure there's no challenge in that so I try to follow people that I don't agree with all the time and I would hope that most people who do follow me um, at least tolerate that and that sometimes the th- areas where they don't agree with what I have to say, those are the biggest opportunities they have to learn something because they might actually change their mind. I know this is heresy and it happens very rarely on Twitter that you change anyone's mind, but it does happen occasionally. And I think those are the, the breakthroughs. Um, so I do enjoy putting that out there even when I know that a large percentage or even a majority of people who are following are going to go, well, that's stupid or that's inconsiderate or that's dumb or or whatever it is, right? Because that's just part of it. There's no other way. There's no other way where I speak to, I don't know how many of the 300,000 followers of bots or not reading or whatever, but some subset of that is still a fair number of people um, who all hear what I have to say and go like, oh yeah, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. No, they don't. They hear that and go, that's strange. Like I didn't think about it that way. That's stupid or whatever. And then maybe it doesn't work in the moment. Maybe in the moment they just reject that thought outright. And then three weeks from now, there's a little, a little crack, a little crack, a little opening where some light can shine in, in a, from a different angle. And they read something similar to someone else says. And then they go, huh, mm, okay, maybe there's something. And then the crack opens a little more. And then maybe two months later, they hear some interview with someone else who says the same thing. And then boom, it's open. Now there's a change that's possible. I think that that's that's fun. I mean, and it's fun because I can sit here and imagine it because I don't know if that actually happens. But it's fun to think that the stuff that I put out there does have an, have an impact beyond just what I, I see and the reactions that I get right away. Because on Twitter, the reaction you get right away is the knee jerk. You get the instant reaction because the tweets will fly off. So unless someone reacts within a few minutes of when you posted it, um, usually they won't see it. So I get the bulk of my reactions right away. They're not exactly considered reactions. You read something and then 30 seconds later you have a response to it. Well, Okay, that's, that's not consideration. I mean, it may be right, you may be right, but, but um, it's not consideration. So I think having uh, the tweet and the response even just be the first opening act of, 
a longer process that is changing people's minds for the long term. And I've changed my mind in that way. That's why I sort of know that this is how it works. That I've read things on Twitter or elsewhere where I go like, that's stupid. And then there was a crack in my mind. And then three months later, I went like, oh, I don't know. I mean, it's still kind of dumb. And then six months later, I go like, oh, yeah, this is totally great. And two years later, I go like, this is the way it is. It's always been like this. this everyone should think like this, right? This is the cycle of illumination. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts and ideas today. And I just want to say I think you're very well situated to to write a book about a Stoic's Guide to, to Twitter uh, at some point if, <laughs> <laughs> if you have any interest. <laughs> yeah. What What's the best way for listeners to keep following your work and to see that evolution of ideas? So Twitter is a – it's at DHH. It's a little bit of a firehose feed and I sometimes will tweet 40 times a day. And other times, not at all. But that's a good place to to get the fire hose. But I'd actually say, if you like any of the ideas that we've been talking about, the distillation of those ideas is the books that I've written. Uh, Rework is, of the books you can buy today, if this podcast premieres before October 2nd, when it doesn't have to be crazy at work, comes out, is the grand distillation of, of most of the ideas. But otherwise, I, I'm... I'd certainly be remiss not to hawk my own book coming out shortly. And it doesn't have to be crazy at work. It's available for pre-order on both hardcover and Audible and Kindle. And it has a lot of these concepts that we've been talking about. Um, But Twitter will have plenty of promotion for that too. So if you follow the Twitter feed, you will not be able to escape my promotions for that leading up to it. Um, I'm on Instagram too. That is more of a highlight reel of beautiful things that I enjoy looking at. It is not in any way, shape, or form a realistic depiction of neither my life or um, anything else. Um, I have also, as I do with Twitter, a very ambivalent relationship with Instagram. And I think it has all sorts of potential to make people feel bad about things. Um, But I also recognize that at least for me, looking at beautiful things is enjoyable. Do it in moderation. Do it with uh, separation between your perception and your reaction. But enjoy it nonetheless. So that's, that's probably it. Thank you. Sure. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Please subscribe to our podcast for more discussions like this one and visit storyhackers.com for more content.